T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 971 FM Talk Podcast. This hour of the Mark Reardon Show is sponsored by Gamma Tree Experts. Your trees deserve the best care. Call Gamma Tree Experts. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, from humble beginnings as the uh, the official state lawmaker of the Mark Reardon Show to the United States Senate, Eric Schmidt is with us this afternoon. How are you? I'm doing great, Mark. Yes, that's right. From from Bridgeton to the Reardon Roundtable, and here we are. So, yes. Well, how are you? How have the first few weeks gone? You got, I mean, the, the month's almost over, isn't it? It is. I mean, we're getting back this week, but, um, you know, early on January 3rd was the swearing in, and it was, you know, it was a... A, a pretty special day. My uh, a lot of my family and, and a lot of friends from back home came to D.C. and a lot of my family had never been here, and so it was you know kind of a surreal surreal moment. And to be able to share that with your your family, I um, when I was sworn in, I was the two thousandth American sworn into the United States Senate, so kind of a round number there. That's kind of uh, cool. Yeah, it is cool. And actually, um, found out today. I tweeted this out that um, I inherited Harry Truman's desk and. Uh, Senator Tom Eagleton also had that desk, and I graduated from Truman State, and Senator Eagleton gave the commencement address when I graduated from college 25 years ago. So I guess that's kind of a, a weird little fun fact, but, uh, but it's obviously it's you know, an incredible honor to represent my state here in the U.S. Senate and anxious to get to work. Yeah, you know, I remember when Senator Blunt showed me around a few years ago, he had some things, I can't remember offhand what they were, but there were some things that were very historic in his office as well. So uh, that's fascinating, and I love the, uh, the tie-ins. Now, you don't know your committee assignments yet, right? No, I don't. They're, they're still working on that, and, uh, and so we'll find out soon enough. I'm not sure exactly when that'll happen, but, but pretty shortly, and, and we'll get to work on the, on the committee work and, and uh, as you know, Congress moves forward this year. Now, can you lobby a little bit on, on that when it comes to what committees you prefer? How does that yeah, work? Yeah, you talk about, yeah, you can talk about things that, um, that you're interested in. And, you know, some of it has to do with your experience. Um, but also there's seniority in the, in the United States Senate. It's a, it's a body that, uh, you know, uh, that seniority and exhaustion are usually the ways that things move forward in the Senate. So, so we'll see how that all plays out. But no matter what those assignments are, um, you know, I'm going to be the same guy I've always been. And we're going to, you know, fight wasteful spending and advocate on behalf of working people, hold this administration accountable. A lot of the work I did as AG, um, you know, taking on a lot of those big, tough issues, certainly want to do that here as well. So one of the things that you have on your list, uh, Senator, is dismantle the administrative state. I think I know a little bit about what that means, but explain to the listeners what that might mean. 
So I think it's important to take kind of a step back. The founders envisioned a government. It was a government of self-government, right, where the people could send someone there, they could send them home, or they could send them back, but you're accountable to the people. So you have three branches of government, you spread out power, so that no one person agency ever gets too powerful, right? And ultimately, at the heart of that is this idea of accountability. Well, what has happened is these bureaucracies, these agencies have developed over time, and they're not accountable to anybody. I mean, I had a Uh, A farmer in northwest Missouri told me during the campaign trail, he's like, Eric, I just don't ever remember voting for the deputy undersecretary of the EPA, right? It's a great example. (laughs) But that person has immense power over people's lives and livelihoods. It's like, you know, 87,000 IRS agents. I mean, who's making these decisions? And they affect real people. They affect their businesses. And so for me, a real focus is to dismantle that apparatus that's not accountable and have Congress vote on this stuff, right? Like if it's such a good idea to ban gas stoves, which is a terrible idea, Congress, the elected representatives and senators should have to vote on these things, right? Because I think that would stop in its tracks a lot of these goofy ideas because Congress has honestly, Mark, over the years said, hey, I voted for the greatest bill in the world, but I can't believe this agency did that. We've got to get away from that. We've got to hold you know, congressmen and senators accountable. People can fire them if they don't like their decisions or send them back. But right now we have these agencies that are way too powerful and not accountable to anybody. One of the reasons I think that's a good idea as far as you know, shining some light on this when it comes to debate is let's face it these bills are ginormous we've heard from the former speaker you know you have to read it to find out what's in it but if you don't have debate the media is not going to cover some of these things anyway but if you don't have some debate beforehand i don't think you find out about some of these issues that deserve a lot of attention that's exactly right and another good idea would be to say hey look agency and i intend to move this idea forward if 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 you want to propose a new rule or a new regulation why don't you have to pull back two or five or ten? Pick the number, and we can negotiate the number. But it would do a couple things. It would force them to you know, examine if this is a good idea in the first place and then also get off the books things that if they ever were a good idea, they've outlived any usefulness that they've probably had. And so I just think that that's going to take some time and it's going to take some attention. And by the way, like I said, those rules that come forward, I think Congress should have to vote on those. Um, and again, get back to this idea where the people's representatives are the ones making these decisions, not these bureaucrats who can hide in these, you know, beautiful buildings. Nobody knows who knows who they are, but they affect people's lives. Senator Eric Schmidt is with us this afternoon. So what's your anticipation then for this debate on the debt ceiling that's coming up? We'll see. I mean, we were just sort of brief today. This is going to take place over several months on this debt ceiling debate. And uh, it's funny, I've, I've been here for about five minutes and everybody's talking about raising the debt ceiling again, but nobody on the Democrat side in particular is focused at all about actually making some smart decisions. To put that in perspective, Mark, since Joe Biden has been in office, $4.6 billion has been added every single day to the national debt. That's like building, if inflation adjusted, every day, the cost to construct Bush Stadium 3 that is, you know, our, our Cardinals playing, you'd build eight and a half of those every day. That's just how much has been added to the debt. So this spending has to, I mean, this, it's just out of control, Mark, and there has to be a focus on it because that's how we've gotten to where we've got. We spend a billion dollars a day on interest. 
it's got to stop. Well, but one of the, one of the tough things about that, and look, I think the Washington Post has a has a piece about this. Sometimes I think they're trying to just you know rile people up. But let's face it, the headline of this story is House GOP eyes Social Security, Medicare mid spending battle. I don't know that that's the argument that's going to take place in the next couple of months. But these these entitlement programs are are driving a lot of this debt right now, and they're really I've talked about it now for about thirty years on the radio, and nobody really wants to do anything about it. And the people that do want to do things about it, it, it just seems impossible. But the thing is, the fact is, Republicans are not talking about doing any of those things. We're talking about, let's have a laser-like focus on some of these woke, weaponized bureaucracies, right? They cost, I mean, the amount of money that we spend on ridiculous stuff, let's start there. But the Democrats don't even want to have that conversation. Joe Biden has said there's going to be no no negotiation on this. Well, listen, I'm from Missouri. I'm new here. But it doesn't, you know, that dog won't hunt. I mean, we've got to, at some point here, start talking about you know, having our budgets in line with how, you know, the American people devise their budgets. They sit around, they say, how much are we going to have? Um, and then how much can we spend? Which is why I've long advocated for a balanced budget amendment. We need structural reforms, Mark, to actually get this under yeah. control because you can't cuss, trust. I, 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 don't think you can, I don't think you can do it without a balanced budget amendment. So I'm, I'm a big fan of that. This next question would have been perhaps a little different this morning or yesterday outside of today, because now we have documents that have been found at the former vice president Pence's house. What, do you have any in your garage? I've been checking my, <laughs> I do not. my house. No, I do not. I mean, well, not yet. Give yourself some time. You might be able to take some home. But <laughs> right. I mean, I think part of the issue here and there's there's a lot of things that I think need to be looked at. But one thing I have. I've heard from even like guys like Larry Summers in the last administration saying some of this stuff is overclassification as well. So I don't know what role lawmakers would have in that, but this is getting out of control. And I think a lot of people are, are, are scratching their heads over all of it. Well, and I think and I think the other thing that's at play here is just sort of the way that this has been treated. I mean, this began with, you know, Democrats talking about, you know, President Trump and what was found at, you know, at Mar-a-Lago. The truth is that was a pre-dawn raid by the FBI, Right. And now Biden has claimed, you know, some sort of transparency. They're not being transparent. There's like the, every house, that, I don't know how many homes he owns, um, but you're finding classified documents there. And I think the one thing that's also very concerning about the Joe Biden scenario is Hunter Biden is paying $50,000 a month to rent the home of Joe Biden, where these documents were found in a so-called locked garage by his Corvette. I mean, you know, Hunter Biden is compromised. There's no doubt about that. And and sort of him being around these classified documents, whatever they are, is probably not a good idea. One final question. Is there someone that you've met in the last three weeks up there on Capitol Hill, uh, around the swearing and anything else that sort of uh, made you feel even more surreal? Well, you're on. The, I mean, it's, it's interesting. Like, um, I, I approach this with a lot of humility, but you're on that Senate floor, you know, about ready to get sworn in, and you're, you know, having conversations with, you know, Senator Cinema or, um, you know, Ted Cruz or Marco Rubio, and so, you know, everybody's been incredibly gracious, and you know, I came here to to get the work done of the people and continue to fight for the things that I believe in. But everybody's been really nice and. Uh, uh, as far as, you know, kind of welcome you to the Senate, but the real work now begins. But there's a lot of, I mean, interesting people here. There's no doubt about it. I'll probably have some better stories for you as the years Absolutely. roll on. Well, look, thank you so much for squeezing us in. I appreciate it. Senator Eric Schmidt, back to work there on Capitol Hill. We'll talk soon. Take care, Mark. 517, I will tell you candidly, and this is what happens, you get to the U.S. Senate. You know, I've known him for a long time. They put a bit of a time stamp on this interview because he's busy. Had they not do, done that, I would have probably brought it up to the senator that Scott Rowland is in the Hall of Fame. We just found Woo! that out. They just made the announcement 
during that interview. How exciting is that? Well, I think that the um, you know the conventional wisdom at this point was that he was it was his sixth ballot. He got seventy six percent of the vote. Typically, you need probably seventy nine percent. I think is what we heard yesterday, but. Um, Bernie Miklas wrote about this. He said, Tuesday, Roland had been chosen on 80.4% of the ballots made public by voters. 50% had shared their selections with um, this guy, Ryan Thibodeau, for Ballot Tracker. Uh, they didn't know about the other 50. But he, he ends up, it doesn't matter at this point, right? He's right. in the Hall of Fame. He was on the ballot six times. I love, do you get Bernie's newsletter? I do not. I miss him so much at the Post, but he's got this email newsletter, and it's free. You should oh, probably charge right. for it. Don't, don't tell... Uh, you know, Bernie, I said that, but he brings up a couple of the things that we talked about yesterday. Like the Baseball Hall of Fame has a very low population of third basemen. The position has been oddly overlooked by voters. Remember we talked about that? That's weird. Uh, Mike Schmidt, Brooks Robinson, Paul Molitor, Wade Boggs, Chipper Jones. Um, Bernie says, I would argue that the number should be five, not six, because Molitor took only 29.7% of his career big league plate appearances as a third baseman, which is clear. He belongs, Molitor belongs in the Hall of Fame. He's saying probably not as a third baseman. Um, this was, this stu- stuck out, stuck out, jumped out at me. Only two third basemen in MLB history have had a combination, possible? listen to this, of 300 plus home runs with at least eight gold gloves. Wow. Mike Schmidt from the Phillies and Scott Rowland. Only three third basemen in big league history have a combination of 300 homers and 500-plus doubles and one gold glove. Adrian Beltre, Rowland, and Chipper Jones. And, you know, the list goes on here with the case for him being in the Hall of Fame, which obviously the baseball writers finally agreed to. Um, the only knock on Rowland, he gets to this late in his column, he received MVP votes in only four seasons. He never finished higher than fourth in the balloting. He was a big part of five teams that competed in the playoffs, was huge in the 2006 World Series, but mostly disappointed in the playoffs. But again, he wrote this column before it was made public that, that he was in the Hall of Fame. So I think that's awesome that Scott Rowland is going into the Hall of Fame. Congratulations. That's fantastic. Yeah, and it is really good. Now, I didn't see anybody else. Do you see anybody else that's in? Uh, uh, no, um, I only saw Frank's tweet that said that Rowland was in. I have not looked for more. I will... Um, I will see if we can find something on the Twitter. I want to talk about this. We're going to talk about um, some gender stuff here with uh, Laura Bryan Hanford, who's with The Federalist. This is a fascinating story about a teenager in Virginia whose um, school wanted to hide her gender identity. And in the end, she ended up being sex trafficked, not once, but twice. And some of this is related to the school's decision and Laura's going to give us the update on that. But listen to this. I think we got to get Joe Warmington as a guy that I've gotten to know over the, the last few years. He's up in Toronto, a good Canadian. He's like the Canadian Mark Reardon Show correspondent. Whenever we, Remember we had the trucker strike? We went up and Joe yeah. talked to us about some of this stuff. So this is really weird to me, but I think we're going to hear more and more things along these lines in this country as well. Dave Strom wrote about it on Hot Air today. Segregation is making a comeback in the Western world, and the left thinks it's a good thing. They are its proponents. That's how Dave wrote this. It's been going on for a while on the theory that minorities cannot tolerate being around white people. More and more institutions have been providing safe spaces. Remember the uh, Arizona State incident where you had a couple of kids that were in there and there were minority students, African-American students that said, we you do not belong in our multicultural room. Right. We don't want you here. So now in Canada, they have something called the National Arts Center, and they've embraced the idea of something called 
the blackout. Jonathan Kay tweeted about this and said the Canadian National Arts Center has tightened up the admission requirements for its upcoming race segregated performance. It's no longer black identifying. It's now black. Full stop. So don't even think about going if you say indigenous, Asian. What it doesn't matter. Blackout performances. This is from the organization exclusively for black audiences. What year is this again? What year is this that we're in? The NAC will be hosting our first evening dedicated exclusively to black audience members. This blackout night will be the first of two this season. We will be welcoming black audience members to come and experience live theater in community with, um, hang on, I might have to sneeze. <coughs> I Man, that was, I was trying to fight it off. Um, Advisory, mature theme, strong language, blah, blah, blah. There's some Canadian language here. This is really amazing, though. Um, they, they said this. The blackout is an open invitation to black audiences to come and experience performances with their community. The evenings will provide a dedicated space for black theatergoers to witness a show that reflects the vivid kaleidoscope that is the black experience. The following blackout, NAC, will be the second curated play from... Blah, blah, blah. I don't even know what this is, but they talk about how they're doing two of these. Creating evenings dedicated to black theater goers will allow for conversation and participation to be felt throughout the theater and open the doors for black identifying audiences. The experience, the energy of the NAC with a shared sense of belonging and passion. What happens if you're only like, can Meghan Markle go to this thing? Right. I don't think so. I don't think so. No, 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 no. Dave Strong summed this up. Very well. He said, apparently when black people are segregated from others, they become a vivid kaleidoscope, which I suppose could be a bit disorienting for people who don't change colors when rotating. Wow. That is stunning. That is. We may have to go up to Toronto and get a little bit more about that from Joe Warmington. But that's where we are in 2023. We're bringing back. We had Jim Crow 2.0 in Georgia, where we just learned today that there was a group that did a survey. Not one person, not one black person said that they were negatively affected by Jim Crow 2.0. But up in Canada, they're going to do a blackout. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter. Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did. The only problem with this particular piece of bumper music is I never want it to end. 
And for those of you who have never seen the Mavericks live, put it on your list. You will not be disappointed. Who knows how right I am on that. Scott Rowland is in the Hall of Fame, ladies and gentlemen. Just found that out. He uh, made it in on his sixth ballot, 76.3% of the vote. So that's exciting for Cardinals fans. We'll have much more coverage of that tomorrow and into the weekend as well. I have an audio cut of the day coming up here before the end of the hour. We are loaded. By the way, we're loaded up for tomorrow. Our friend George Gray from The Price is Right. I noticed when I was watching football over the weekend, The Price is Right is doing like a primetime deal tomorrow night. George has worked with Drew Carey as the modern-day Johnny Olsen for years now. He is a uh, St. Louis guy. He splits his time between St. Louis and Arizona. His mom lives here, so he comes into town every once in a while. Tomorrow will not be one of those days, but he's going to, from a Hollywood do the prices wrong in the four o'clock hour. Also, this great story about the new treasurer, Vivek Malik, who's from here in the Wildwood area, was appointed by Governor Parson to be the new state treasurer. They covered the uh, swearing in live in India on television because it was such a big story there. And we'll visit with um, Vivek tomorrow afternoon on 97.1 FM Talk. I have talked quite a bit, I think those of you who follow the show or have for years, about the trans issues. We got into some of the, uh, you know, the complaints about Harry Potter and J.K. Rowling in the last hour. This story, though, that's in The Federalist is horrifying, in my opinion. Laura Bryant Hanford wrote about it. She's going to tell us what happened with this teenager in Virginia when her school wanted to kind of hide from her parents her gender identity. Laura, how are you this afternoon? I'm doing well, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. This is one, unfortunately, when people hear the details of this, I think they're going to get a little queasy through their stomach because this is pretty serious. I mean, it's one thing when you have someone that wants to wear, we had a story here, Laura, last week about one of our school districts sort of uh, keeping this um, news, I guess, that some of these kids want to wear what's called chest binders to themselves, Mm -hmm. right? So don't tell Mm -hmm. the parents because these kids are going through a lot. Well, the... um, State of Virginia is introducing something called Sage's Law, the Child Protection Act, which I think is probably going to be replicated around the country because of the case that you wrote about, right? That's right. And actually, Sage's Law was also something that um, was was essentially my idea together with um, Freedom Foundation. So that was kind of our, our brainchild as we thought about, you know, how can we address this? These were institutional failures. She was failed by every adult in her life who should have protected her, except for her mother, And, um, you know, these are really clear points of inflection where institutions failed her and where we can make policy changes. So I do hope this goes national. That's our goal. Yeah. Now, this is a this girl named Sage and we don't have the last name because of privacy reasons. This actually happened in Maryland, right? Well, no. Well, part of it. So it started. She is from Virginia. She and her family are from Virginia, just kind of a rural area. So, you know, you wouldn't think that a red area in Virginia would have these policies about concealing uh, gender, which you associate more with the liberal areas like Fairfax. My my county right. has a, a policy on that. But it was in rural Virginia, but she was abducted and trafficked across first to Washington, D.C., and then to Maryland. And it was the Maryland judge who wouldn't give her back to the state of Virginia and to her family. So, Let's kind of go back to the, the beginning here and what happened in school. She was 15 when, when some of this happened the first time? She was actually 14, Mark. She was really young, and she had, um, she like a lot of other transgender kids or kids who identify that way or start to question their gender, she had a whole history of um, trauma and 
some other mental health issues that her mother had notified the school about. So she wanted to go to a public high school. She had been in a smaller setting before that really worked with her mother. If they noticed that there were some issues and behavior or concerns, you know, where emotionally she didn't seem like she normally was, they would come to her mother and they would say something. And because for a couple of years she had been um, under treatment for for mental health issues, um, she was already vulnerable. And so it's really important, anyone who knows, about those kinds of issues knows that there's medication, there's, you know, adjustments you have to make. Sometimes side effects don't come out till later. So it's really key to keep parents in the loop. So her mother, thinking, well, the school's going to cooperate with me like this last one did, filled out all the forms. She had even been hospitalized that summer, Sage had, for um, some of these mental health issues. She just started a new protocol, all these things that should have been huge issues that meant the school kept the mom in the loop. Well, they didn't, and she started, Sage started school, and she was dressing, you know, emo and um, wearing boyish clothes, and this is what she was telling her mom, that she was just dressing in this way, um, that that was just the latest thing. Her dad even took her to get her hair dyed blue. You know, they were basically, you know, thinking this is a phase. We're not going to make a big deal out of it. She's exploring, you know, different ways of dressing and of projecting herself. Well, Sage started to be bullied really badly at that school, and rather than looping her parents into that, they, the counselor had already told her she could use um, the boys' bathroom. Sage later told her mom she would had a conversation with the counselor the first week of school where the counselor said, well, if you're identifying as a boy, then yes, you can use the boys' bathroom. <clears throat> so Sage was doing that, and at one point she was um, – <clears throat> so there started to be reports that she was getting these severe – Um, threats of bullying and all the school knew about these, but didn't fully inform the parents and never once told the parents that Sage at school was going by a name, a male name, Draco is what she had picked, and male pronouns. So everything sort of came to a head on a Monday in August where um, something happened in the school bathroom and It was enough that there started to be reports flying around the schools, rumors that there had been a rape and threats and all this sort of thing. So, again, without telling the parents, the school pulled her in and told her she should use the nurse's bathroom for safety. And then the next day, they bring in a police officer and the counselor to talk to um, Sage after reviewing hallway footage that showed that five, I don't don't know numbers, but a number of boys were seen in the hallway footage. You don't have footage inside the bathroom, but a number of boys were seen going into the bathroom at the same time Sage was in there. Um, And ironically, you mentioned binders. That was why she said later she had gone in there to put on a binder, um, to change in there and put on a binder. Well, but you're saying um, you're also. I don't want to stop you right here. I apologize. Yeah, sure. you, you said that. Sure. So at this point, the police actually come, and the parents are still not notified. Yes. Well, the school resource officer. So that's okay. like your local, you okay. know, police right. officer. So they're interviewing this girl who we already know is mentally fragile. She's been subjected to severe bullying, um, and you know, threats of rape, threats of um, knife violence, all kinds of things. So they pull, they bring in this girl without the parents. And in the meeting, there's a whole discussion. And what I'm telling you is based on we um, requested the school records. She requested the school records. And so, um, you know, they they this is based in part on what the school records show. This timeline that I'm telling you is based on the school's actual timeline of events. So <clears throat> they have this conversation that ends up with Sage being so distraught that um, – 
that they call her mother, and the, the school records show that the counselor at that point was concerned enough about Sage that she thought she might even hurt herself. And why in the world they would put this girl on the spot without telling her mother in that first meeting is, again, one of the, the big questions. But, yeah, there's, there's a lot right. of big questions here. But oh, mom, a, mom tries to so comfort many. her, right, and says, look, right. we can, you can stay home. We're going to figure out how to handle the bullying. And then, right. and then she disappears. Sage just, she's gone, right? She runs away. That's right. She runs away, and she actually, there isn't time for all the details in the story, but there's a note that's left behind where she talks about how she was afraid for, um, she was afraid of what would happen if she stays. And this is a 14-year-old kid. Um, and so she, and that is also just backing up a bit. That's the first that, that her mom found, um, saw a note, found a note with a hall pass with the new name on it. So at that point, Sage finally told her mom that she was going by I'm going as a boy, and her mom said, "Just stay home. We'll figure this out." But as you said, like it was too late at that point. She she went away. She she um, left the home that night, thinking she was going to meet a 16 year old kid who liked to skateboard like she does, and it was a sexual predator who was part of a sex trafficking ring. And she disappeared for nine days. And that's when um, they found her in Maryland, right? That's how the Maryland that's connection when takes they place. Found, that's right. Right. So she ended up there, and then the judge there. They get, you know, they put in her favorite treats. They rush there. The FBI says, come get her in the, the next morning. So they drive all night to get there from where they are in Virginia. It's several hours away. They drive all night to get there, you know, just um, prepared to comfort her and, and do whatever they can after this horrific experience because she was she was trafficked. She was drugged. She was raped more times than she can even remember by multiple men. She was locked in a, in a, a room in this place in Maryland where this, um, it was actually a repeat sex offender um, who's already been tried, and um, it's the first of several trials, but he's been convicted. So she's found in Maryland, and they go to retrieve her, and they're sent to the jail. And yeah, so this, this takes, I think this takes a real, you know, strange turn at this point, Laura. So she, they, they go to the jail. She ends up going into a juvenile detention center. And why was that? Exactly. Well, because... She, rather than treat her as a victim of a sex trafficking crime, the judge chose to treat her as a delinquent runaway. And that gave him grounds. And who knows what happened? I mean, picture a 14-year-old child who is absolutely traumatized, who's been drugged. I don't know what happened in those, that discussion, but somehow they are denied access. They're told that they have to go to, to a hearing late that afternoon, seven hours. They waited in the car to, to talk to this judge. And when they get to the hearing, the judge, um, the Sage is still uh, remote in the penitentiary. So all by herself in detention, there's a public defender, assistant public defender who is standing in the courtroom and she accuses them on their behalf of abusing Sage because they weren't sufficiently affirming her. Yeah, so they so, they actually make the case in court that, um, and, and the attorney says on Sage's behalf that she had been both emotionally and physically abused by right. his parents in connection with mm-hmm. his express. You know, if you're not misgendering here, express yep. male gender identity and desire to live as a trans male, and then you know you have a quote in here where because now it, it, we should mention that luckily now I think things are you know a lot better and there's even a quote from Sage who reflects back on this and says I don't know who I was I'm a totally different mm-hmm. person now I was never a boy everybody was doing it I just wanted to have friends but at one point she tells her mom that the lawyer says tell 
the judge that your parents hit you and starved you. She was the attorney was being encouraging here to try to make the story sound more dramatic. Is that basically what happened? That for that based on what Sage finally shared with her mom five months later after she was able to talk to her again, after she'd been sex trafficked a second time. They were on a plane, and Michelle said it was like she was just kind of unburdening her heart to her. And she felt so guilty because she said the attorney had told her, um, I don't care if you have to lie about abuse or anything, um, but, you know, we're going to win this case. That's horrible. I mean, it's unbelievable. Uh, So let's get in in some of the details. I would encourage people to read the piece that's in The Federalist. And as you mentioned, um, Laura, it's hard to get through all of this because there's so much to it. But let's talk about the law. And you you said that you were behind the Sages Law of the Child Protection Act. What would it do? So the two key points that we're going after that really lead to a lot of these different things are, one, parental exclusion policies. So where you keep parents out of the loop you're actually removing a child's greatest protection. And then you're, you're essentially kind of leaving the door open to predators if you keep parents from knowing what's going on in their child's life. And you don't know who's going to walk through that door. Maybe it's just a friend, but maybe it's what happened to Sage, and it's the vilest of monsters who are going to take your kid. And so when you have, parent notif- parent, when you have schools that are hiding information from parents that are um, encouraging with clubs and with teachers and all, encouraging kids to think, and this is often what happens, that they're at risk from their parents, that their parents might not affirm them. And so that's risky, and they're conflating that with abuse. Well, if you've read anything of Abigail Schreier, she's a, she's a liberal uh, journalist. She's okay. awesome, yeah. So she's fantastic, and she addresses this very point in one of her articles. She says, a difficult conversation is not abuse. You know, that might be a difficult conversation, or it might not. In Sage's case, ironically, they didn't even know she was presenting herself as a boy until the day she ran away. So one is these, but if they had told Michelle what was going on, they, Michelle would have had time to say, you know what, this doesn't sound right. Let's, you know, there's other stuff going on here. But the problem is when you single out gender, Everything else, and then you lo- not only do you risk locking that in, but also you risk missing, missing the real point and the underlying point. So the parent exclusion policy is the first point in Sage's Law that are really critical to get rid of this idea that somehow the schools are safe and the parents are dangerous. And that's just what underlies this whole movement. And it's, it's very insidious and it's very corrosive. And there is a group that does this training all over the country called Gender Spectrum, and they train schools to be affirming, and it's in their materials that, that school counselors need to be trained to potentially or need to be trained to understand that they may need to testify before a judge against parents. This is literally in their material. Uh, and the same goodness. materials, the yeah. same group goes around to judges and trains them to be affirming, quote unquote. So what you see in Sage's case is this perfect duo of what what's being pushed. And the absolute catastrophe it is for an, for a child's best interests. So the second, so the second point, the first point is um, that you have to notify parents if a child is presenting as a different gender at school, under the assumption that this is part of overall mental health and a school is not qualified. Yeah. Why, why is that? So why why would that even be controversial? Laura, right? right? I mean, here's here's just listening to this and reading your piece. Here's what I'm thinking. I, I tend to be a pretty reasonable person. Um, some people may not believe that. And do I think that there are some people who have true gender dysphoria? Probably are, right? But um, mm-hmm. 
look, this is a social contagion. And Sage's case is a perfect example. And by the way, Sage's case is not unique. You know this. There are a lot of cases right? like this. Fortunately, these kids aren't ended up sex trafficked in most cases. This is even horrifying, more horrifying because of that. But I would love for school boards across the country to have your piece in The Federalist and this story as required reading, along with gender <laughs> queer and all these other stories. Because if you're going to present, <laughs> I'm being serious though, if you're going to present one side of the story here when it comes to all this gender affirmation, you damn well better present the other side of the story. And this is the other side of the story. That's right. This is real life. And the difference is we don't even really have statistics that I don't know of any trans parents of trans kids who have thrown their kids out. And by now, we probably all know trans parents you know, or parents of kids who are identifying as trans. It may be the case that that happens sometimes, but what's really, what we do know is happening is situations where kids are getting lured away from their families by this promise that they will have this glitter family of affirming people that will celebrate them, unlike their parents. And then you're right. This is not happening just to Sage, but that in Sage cases, Sage's case, it was the worst possible outcome. But there are many, many others that end up pulled away from their families and pulled into all kinds of other things that are not necessarily in their best interest and sometimes are outright harmful. I hear it all the time. I've heard it from friends who've gone through some of this horror with their daughters. And luckily, most of those cases have turned around where they're just like Sage, where the kids are like, I can't mm -hmm. even believe that I did that. This is so important, Laura. Thank you for working on this issue. And I would always recommend, I'm sure you would too, the Parents with Inconvenient Truths About Trans um, website yeah. that Bari and Abigail Schreier put together. Subscribe to that. You're going to get a lot of information on the cult that exists out there in some of this um, nonsense. But thank you, Laura Bryant Hanford. I appreciate it. You are very welcome. And if there's anyone who wants to support Sage, they can go to thegavelproject.com. How do you spell gavel? Sure How do you, that was clear did you say gavel? So, G-A-V-E-L? Um, gavel. Uh-huh. G-A-V-E-L dot com. And if you click onto the Sage, you know, for Sage's case, yeah. everything goes to her and to support her case awesome. and some treatment, too, that is resident. Glad you got that in there. I appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. Thank you. Audio Cut of the Day is coming up next. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did. Oh, we got a big show tomorrow. We have George Gray with The Price is Wrong. Also, Vivek Malik, who is the brand-new state treasurer for Missouri. I think uh, Fred has the roundtable set for Friday. Jane Duker, former St. Louis County Councilman Tim Fitch, and current alderman Rasheen Aldridge all on the panel on Friday. we got to do this before we get out of here this afternoon. Stand by. Playback ready. Now, the audio cut of the day. Well, there's... Um, Controversy, as you probably know, in Florida over this proposed advanced placement African-American studies course for high school students. And the state announced last week it was rejecting one course. Um, and this has become somewhat controversial, even gotten to the White House where KJP was asked about this. And here's what she said. If you think about the study of black Americans, that is what he wants to block. They didn't block AP European history. They didn't block our, our music history. They didn't block our uh, art history. Uh, but the state chooses 
chooses to, to block a course that is meant for high achieving high school students to learn about their history of arts and culture. Arts and culture. Arts and Remember that. Arts and culture. Think about the study of black oh, No, that's the wrong one. We have guidelines and standards in Florida. Uh, we want education, not indoctrination. This course on black history, what are one of, what's one of the lessons about? Queer theory. Now, who would say that an important part of black history is queer theory? Apparently the White House would. There you go. Your audio cut of the day. We'll talk tomorrow. See you at the Helbig event in a few minutes if you're going there. Get more at 971talk.com. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll be glad you did.